One, two, three, here we go. Tommy, if we reach in, grab any card. All right, you're very, very precise. You're like, okay, here, reach in, grab one. All right, look at your card, show them to the camera. All right. Here, place your card in. Here's what I'm gonna have you do. Tell me when to stop whenever you want. Stop. Okay, here, place your card in. I'm gonna have you both hold out your hands for me, one over the other, so, so like this. Yeah, perfect. I will, I will start with your card. I'm gonna have your card just jump up to the top. You had what, the six of spades? I'm gonna have you hold on to the six, and did you see his card over here? You had, you had what, the 10 of hearts? I'm gonna have you hold on to the 10. That was your card, right? And yeah, was that not your card? No. What was your card? Mine was the five of diamonds. Here, watch. One, two, three. Go ahead and look. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Come on. I thought he messed it up. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, we got him. We got him. <laughs> How did we get into this mess? We all want a perfect family, but there isn't one. We have a tendency to avoid this conversation because it makes us feel guilty. Let's talk about it. Hi, Hope. I'm sure your family's perfect. <laughs> Probably not, right? Like the rest of us, our families are a mess. Things get a little chaotic, right? I want to I wanna show you something here with, with the spades to give you a little glimpse of how God could take our families and transform them, how God could do an incredible thing when we just say, you know what, God? Here's my family. I give it to you, right? And so let me, let me do this. So I've grabbed the spades and just want to show you the, the chaos we, we have here. We will come back to this in a moment. But the spades, okay? You could see how they're, you know, all out of order like our families, like things are, are messed up. But here's the incredible thing of what God could do is he could transform our family every day as we give it to him and bring it back into order where things weren't perfect, right? Um, he could bring grace and hope and life back into our marriages so that we don't, you know, we don't just struggle in, in vain and see that he doesn't have a story for us, but he has a great story for us where he reshapes us. Even in the context of our community, he could begin to transform the lives of those around us as we're giving our life to him and our family to him and our marriage to him. Hope you guys really surrender to him. Thank you for watching. How about that? We had that guy in staff meeting. I called him Beelzebub. I mean, he just did things that blow our, blew our mind. And by the way, you're going to get a chance to see Danny live during this series, and we'll say more about that. But we are talking about House of Cards, the illusion of a perfect family. And we may have given up on that illusion, but I guarantee you this, every one of us, when we started out, we had that kind of dream. We had the dream we were going to have a perfect marriage. We had the dream that we were going to have, we were going to have the perfect family. I mean, do you remember when you got married, you didn't want to miss a thing, just like that Aerosmith song. You, you didn't want to miss one smile. You didn't want to miss one kiss. You wanted to do everything together, experience everything together. You would take long walks together. Uh, you didn't close your eyes and go to sleep at night, man. You lay there and had meaningful conversations conversations, sometimes into the early morning hours, and then years later, you sit here this weekend, you think, 
I would love to just close my eyes and go to sleep. That'd be enough, right? In fact, I'm happy missing pretty much everything. See, what happens? What happens to our marriage relationships? And then you start a family. You have that first kid, and you young people, you have that reveal thing. You know, I don't get that. But anyway, you have your big reveal party. And then nine months later, we see the picture on, you know, social media. And then we see the first day of school picture. And then the second day of school picture. And the third day of school picture. And you don't want to miss a thing. You've got, you know, you want to go to their soccer games, their swim meets, their, you know, their cheerleading competitions. You don't want to miss a thing. In fact, if you're honest, when they're small, you get a little misty, you get a little weepy because you can't imagine what it's going to be like one day when they grow up and they're finally going to leave home. But see, you sit here this weekend and you're weepy for a different reason. You're like, are they ever going to leave home? I mean, you're like, can I just close my eyes and go to sleep and maybe open my eyes and they'd be gone? You know, is that ever going to happen? Will that ever be a reality? And I got to be honest with you, you have every reason to be concerned. Because I just came across a statistic in this series, and this is what it says. For adults, and I, sweat, I, I stress that word, adults 18 to 34, living with one's parents has become the most common living arrangement. Now, am I saying it's wrong? Yes, there is something really, really wrong with that statistic. In fact, to put it in perspective, since 1880... So we're talking 150 years since 1880, the most common living arrangement has been living with a spouse or a partner. But now for 18 to 34-year-olds, it's living at home. The marriage, the family is in trouble. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. It's a series for everyone because whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, whether you're in college, high school, middle school, you are still a part of a family. And you may not like it, but you are. And so we're going to be talking about it, and we need this series because the family, as God designed it, it's in trouble. Let me give you a couple of statistics. In 1960, and that sounds like a long time ago, but I was alive. It can't be that long ago, right? 60 years ago. Think about this. 73% of children were living in a family with two married parents in their first marriage. So we're not talking about a stepmom or a stepdad. We're talking about living in a family with two parents who've always been married, right? 73%, that has now dropped to 46%. Man, that's going in the wrong direction. Here's another one. In 1960, 9% of children live with a single parent. Today, that's 28%. It's tripled. It's going in the wrong direction. Did you know that unmarried women accounted for 41% of the births in America last year? I can just tell you, that's not the way God designed it. Here's another one. In 1930, 83% of adult Americans were married. That has now dropped to 49% of adult Americans. And if you look at the next generation and talk to the generation, they'll say, I don't see any purpose in getting married. I don't see why it's relevant to get married. And so I'm just telling you, the family as God designed it, it's a mess. But here's the good news. We're all in the same boat because all of our families are a mess. You can try your best to give the illusion that it's not, but the reality is it is. So my goal as we kick off the series this weekend is to show you how we got into this mess because I firmly believe unless you can figure out how you got in a mess and understand why you're in the mess, you're never going to get out of the mess. So we're going to talk about how did we get into this mess from a theological perspective, and this is really going to lay the foundation for everywhere we go over the next few weeks. Now to do that, we once again need to go to the book of beginnings. We need to go to the book of Genesis. Everything that began, began in the book of Genesis. Uh, marriage began in the book of Genesis. Family began in the book of Genesis. 
So if you have your Bible this weekend, turn to Genesis chapter 1. If not, we'll put the verses up on the screen. And whenever we do a family series, we always begin here because this is where it all began. So let me show you Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now understand, this goes all the way back to a time when there was absolutely nothing except the Godhead. And they existed in eternity past. There was God the Father, there was God the Son, there was God the Holy Spirit. And, and out of that dark nothingness, out of that dark void, God created. He created light. He created the sun, the moon, the stars. He created the sea and land and vegetations and birds and fish and animals and livestock. And when he was finished with his creation, he stepped back and he appraised it and he said, crushed it crushed it. It's good. It's perfect. It's all there. Nothing needs to be added. And then it says in verse 26 of chapter 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. By the way, let me just say this. A lot of people don't believe in the story of Adam and Eve. And you don't believe in the story of Adam and Eve because when you were a freshman in college, you had some brilliant college professor tell you that it was a myth. But let me tell you why I believe this story really happened. <clears throat> I believe it happened because Jesus believed it happened. I mean, if you read the Gospels, the account of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that Jesus talked about Adam and Eve just like they were real people. In fact, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus bases, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, Jesus based an argument on Adam and Eve. Even more so, Luke chapter 3, there's a genealogy that shows us that Jesus and Adam are actually related. In other words, Jesus can trace his roots all the way back to Adam. So understand, Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real people. And since Jesus is the one who predicted his death and resurrection and then actually pulled it off, I'm going to side with him. See, I doubt your college professor ever did that, right? But anyway, back to Genesis. God creates Adam. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He becomes a living soul. And when you get to chapter 2, you focus in on the creative work of that sixth day. So after he creates him, it says, God, you know, he gave him a place to live. Adam, chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord God had planted a garden in east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Must have been a paradise. Must have just been an incredibly unbelievable place. But God's observing Adam when you get to chapter 2, verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, we don't know what brought God to that conclusion. You know, we don't know if Adam was swinging through the trees with the monkeys. We don't know if he was running around with his shoelaces untied, carrying sharp scissors. We don't know. But God's like, yeah, this isn't good, right? So look what it says. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, look at his reaction. This is now bone of my bones flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And you've heard this at weddings. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now notice this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So it's in a state, in a sense of total innocence. It's all there for their enjoyment. And God says, listen guys, enjoy. I just have one rule. Can you just obey one rule? By the way, how would you love to have just one rule? Just one rule in life. That's the way it started out. 
I got just one rule. Look what it says, chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now understand, whenever you see the word die or death in the Bible, it always means separation, okay? When you die physically, your body separates from your spirit. But so God says two things are going to happen. First of all, you're going to die spiritually. And so God was saying there's going to be a break. There's going to be a separation in our relationship. But second, you're going to begin the process of dying physically. I mean, Adam and Eve would have never died if they had never sinned. And so sure enough, you know, if, I, if God told me you got one rule, stay away from that tree, I would tell my wife, we're not even going over to that neighborhood. We're stay, well, that's a bad neighborhood. We're staying as far away from that tree as possible, right? Well, they're human just like we are. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, by the way, here's a question for you. And I didn't think about it until I was working through this series. How come Satan didn't come after Adam before the woman was around? Why did he wait for the woman before he came after Adam and Eve? I'm going to answer that question. The third week of this series. So you'll have to be here. So it's like a cliffhanger. But it hit me, there really is an important reason for that, and I hope you'll be here. But did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we, must eat, uh, we may eat from, tree, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, that one over there in that other neighborhood, and you must not touch it. God didn't say that. Eve just added it. She just added it. Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And I have written in my Bible right there, dummy, dummy. God just said, don't do it. Now, as I said at the beginning, this weekend, I'm going to address the question, how did the family get into this mess? How did our families become so dysfunctional? How did our families become so broken? Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way or not, but each one of us, I mean, if you really think about it, each one of us have biological characteristics that came from Adam and Eve. And it's because see, we're all, every one of us, at all of our campuses, we are all descendants of the first family, not the Trumps, okay? We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. You know what that means? It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter, you know, where you were born. We are all family. We are all cousins at some level. We all came from Adam and Eve, every one of us. But not only do we have biological characteristics that we receive from Adam and Eve, we also got spiritual characteristics that were passed down to us from Adam and Eve. In other words, we all have spiritual genetic tendencies, things that we struggle with because of the fall of the first family. Think about it, before Genesis chapter three, every person on the earth, now given it was only two people, Adam and Eve, okay? But every person on the earth was in a perfect relationship and a perfect, a perfect relationship with God and they were in a perfect relationship with each other. But when Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden, instantly, every person on the earth was in a broken relationship with God and they were in a broken relationship with each other. Now here's the question, what came with that sin? What were the consequences of Adam and Eve choosing to disobey God? What consequences did we suffer with today that made their way into the human race because of Adam and Eve's disobedience? Now, I've shown you these before. I want to show them to you again because it really does build the foundation of where we're going. But there's one particular one I want to focus on as we wrap it up this weekend. The first one is shame. 
That is the first characteristic that sin brought with it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they tried to take matters into their own hands. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now understand, up until this point, Adam and Eve had never felt, they had never experienced the emotion of shame. But now they do, and they're ashamed. They're feeling guilty. And Adam and Eve did the exact same thing that we do when we're ashamed, they try to cover up. They try to hide from God, they try to hide from each other. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 says, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, if you're new to church, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And if you were to read that phrase in the Hebrew, it's not that God was walking through the Garden of Eden saying, God, Adam, I can't find you looking under bushes and behind trees. Now, where is that guy? That's not what's going on here. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows everything, right? So here's the thing. What God was really asking him, and this is what it says in the Hebrew, why are you where you are? You've never hidden from me before. Why are you where you are? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Nobody had to tell him, see. It was that sense of shame. It was that sense of guilt because they knew they'd screwed up. They knew they had messed up. They knew they had disobeyed God. By the way, you ever thought about this? Who were they hiding from? It was just Adam and Eve and the animals, you know? I mean, with the monkeys pointing, laughing, you know? I don't know about you. I don't care if the dog sees me naked. Now, the cat, that's a whole different issue. Cats are weird. Cats are weird. I I don't want to be in a room with a cat naked. But anyway, who are they hiding from? Well, one, they're hiding from God. We know that. But they're also hiding from each other because for the first time ever, they're experiencing shame. But I want you to notice what God does. Remember, they tried to take matters into their own hands. They tried to cover their nakedness with the fig leaves. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He made garments of skin to cover their nakedness. Now think about that. For God to make garments of skin, something had to die. And just so you know, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that's the first hint, that's the first clue in the Bible that blood has to be shed to cover our sin and our shame. It's like when you go to the movies and you have to sit through 20 minutes of the preview of coming attractions. Genesis 3, 21, it's a preview telling us that eventually the Son of God is going to have to leave heaven, come to this earth, live a perfect life, and shed his blood on a cross to cover our sin and shame once and for all. Let me show you a great verse. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he's arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. The word righteous, just if you're new to church, it just means a right standing with God. It just means I have a right standing with God. And let's be honest, a lot of us, we kind of, just like Adam and Eve, trying to cover themselves up with, with leaves, we try to do our own thing to get ourselves into a right standing with God. We think if we go to church, if we give a little money, if we help the little old lady across the street, if we don't kick the neighbor's dog, if we pay our taxes on time and we're mostly honest, somehow God will be impressed and we will then be in a right standing before God. But you need to understand 
that the only way you can actually be in a right standing with God is through what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. And when we accept what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, that he shed his blood for our sins, and then three days later rose from the dead to verify, I am the one who can take care of your sin. Understand, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is then, at that moment when we make that decision, we transfer our trust from who we are and what we can do to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. At that moment, Jesus' righteousness is deposited into our account. It's deposited into our life, and our sin and our shame is removed. That's pretty cool. Now, a lot of us here this weekend, watching this weekend at the other campuses, we've made that decision. We, we've transferred that trust. We've trusted in Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled back into a relation with God. So, theologically speaking, we have a right standing before God. But let me ask you a question. Even though you have a right standing before God, who would be honest enough to raise their hand with me and say that you screwed up really big time, even after you became a Christian? Just raise your hand. Okay, if you don't have your hand up, you're lying, so you should go ahead and raise your hand up. But anyway, by the way, a, look, raise them again. Raise them again. Look around. Look at all the bad people that go to Hope Community Church. If you're visiting, I wouldn't come here. But anyway, anyway. Now, why do I point that out, that we all screw up, we all mess up, we all continue to disobey, we all continue to sin, even after we become Christians? It's because I promise you this, Satan in the Bible is called the great accuser. And when you screw up, Satan's going to come alongside you and he's going to say, you know what? You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh yeah, there's a lot of bad people at Hope, but they're not as bad as you. See, they haven't messed up. See, they don't really know. They haven't messed up like you've messed up. They don't have the baggage that you see. They don't know what a horrible parent you were. They don't know what a lousy spouse you were. They don't know how bad you were as a child. But you got to understand, even as Christians, we're going to continue to sin. That's just called being human. But even though we blow it, even though we sin, God still loves us and he's forgiven us of all of our sin. You know why? Do you know how he did it? He put the righteousness of his son into our account. And when you make that decision to trust in what Jesus Christ has done, God just kind of stamps across your life, righteous, right standing before God. But understand, shame is the first thing that came with the fall. I'm going to say more about shame as we wrap it up at the end. Here's the second thing that entered the human race because of sin. Blame. Blame. Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman basically said, the devil made me do it. That's, I'm just telling you that right now. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. But I want you to know how Adam in one sentence blames not one but two people. Look what it says, Genesis 3, 12. The woman, God, by the way, you gave me. God, I was perfectly fine when it was just me and the animals, not a care in the world. Take a nap one day, wake up missing a rib, and there she is. And yes, God, I'll give it to you. She is some of your best work, but from the minute I laid eyes on her, I'm thinking trouble. She is nothing but trouble, right? You gave her to me, right? And I'm telling you, just like with Adam and Eve, we do the exact same thing when we mess up. What do we do? We blame God and we blame other people. In fact, I wonder how many of you sitting here this weekend, you are mad at someone in your life right now. And as a result of your anger at them, you're also mad at God. 
Maybe you're mad at your boss because he didn't give you the promotion that you wanted, that you think you deserved, and you're angry at God because he didn't make it happen. Or you're angry at your spouse because aren't, things aren't turning out in the marriage like you thought it was going to turn out. And you're, and you're mad at your spouse because now he or she's a lousy spouse. And you're also mad at God because he's the one that allowed you to go through with it and marry that spouse. Why didn't he stop you? Or you're mad at your child because they're not turning out the way you wanted them to turn out. And so you're mad at God because God didn't fix them. Or you're mad at your parent because you don't like the way they raised you. But you're also mad at God because he didn't allow you to be born into a different family. So I want you to see this is nothing new. All of this blame that goes on in our relationships, all of this finger pointing that goes on in our relationship, it started in Genesis. Spiritual genetic tendency all the way back to the garden. So there's shame, there's blame, and then there's fame. I want to be known. I want to be recognized. I want to be first. I want to come out on top. You get to Genesis chapter 14 and verse 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. God outlines the curse that Adam and Eve brought on themselves because they disobeyed God. And let me just say it again. God did not curse them. This is not the curse God said, I am putting on you because you're disobedient. He told them the curse that they brought on themselves. But I want you to see what Adam does immediately. Genesis chapter 3 verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Mike, that doesn't sound so bad. I, I've called my spouse a lot worse than that. And you probably have, right? But understand, this is what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. Right after the curse, the very next verse, Adam immediately separates from Eve. By the way, God did not name Eve, Eve. Maybe you didn't know that. But Eve's name wasn't Eve before the fall. So what was her name? I mean, did Adam say, hey, hey, you, you know, I need you to come over here for a second. Her name was Adam. Let me show you Genesis 5, 2. Let me show it first in the King James. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day they were created. Now, this word Adam is a Hebrew word. Actually, you pronounce it in the Hebrew Adam. Adam. And it doesn't mean man, it means mankind. So when you get to Genesis 5, 2 in the NIV, the New International Version, they changed it. He created them male and female and blessed them and he named them mankind. That's the Hebrew word Adam when they were created. In other words, her name was Adam slash woman. His name was Adam slash male. But what's important is that's how one they were. They were one. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 5, after the fall, they're falling apart. I mean, do you remember? Adam said in Genesis 2, right before the fall, verse 30, 23 of, of Genesis 2, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Remember that? She's taken out of man. Now he doesn't say that. He says, you know, we're separate. We're different. You're Eve. You're Eve. You're the mother of all living. And some of you are still thinking, I don't know what the big deal is, Mike. Women are mothers. The problem is this. Adam labeled her. After the fall, this is what he was saying. Hey, let me tell you what your role is going to be. Let me tell you what your job is. Your job, your role is to give me kids. That's your role. And I'm telling you, that's why for years women were taught that their basic purpose in life 
was to have children. And that's why still so many women go through such incredible depression when their kids finally do grow up and they leave home in their minds, well, I've fulfilled my purpose. You know, what do I do now? But this is what I want you ladies to hear this weekend. Being a mom is not your primary purpose in life. It's not your primary purpose for existing. Being a wife is not your primary purpose in life. It's not your primary reason for existing. God has a calling. God has a purpose for every person on this earth, male and female. And so, ladies, you need to understand, your highest calling isn't to be a mom. Your highest calling isn't to be a wife. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I believe that we're supposed to be great husbands. I believe that we're supposed to be great wives and moms and great dads. But I'm telling you, your highest call is not your role as a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife. Your highest call is to be a child of God. And let me just tell you something. If you're a good child of God, you're going to be a good husband and a good father. If you're a good child of God, you're, you're going to be a good wife and a good mom. By the way, one other thing, there is no male or female from God's perspective. Let me show you a verse. Genesis chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But again, part of the fall was this idea, this is your job, this is your role, you do it. In other words, he, he labeled her, he separated from her, and understand, this is where the competition began between the sexes. This is where that tension began between men and women. And guess what? It's been a part of our culture ever since. It all began in the garden with the fall, the disobedience of Adam and Eve. So what's the answer? What's the answer for the shame, the blame, the fame that we all suffer from as family members in our own family? Well, this is one of those situations where the answer really is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, it talks about Abraham, but the entire context of that chapter, Acts chapter 3, is actually Jesus. This is what it says, Acts chapter 3, verse 25. He said to Abraham, God speaking to Abraham, the father of the Jews, through your offspring, okay, through your descendants, it's a reference to the Messiah. Jesus is going to come through your lineage. So through your offspring, Jesus all families of the earth will be blessed. You know what that tells me? It tells me we don't just put our faith in Jesus for our salvation. We also put our faith in Jesus for the shame and the blame and the fame that affects all of us and it affects all of our family relationships. Now, if you've been around Hope for a while, you know that we don't sing hymns very often. But I want to close this weekend by sharing the story of a guy who actually wrote what is probably my favorite hymn. And it has to do with shame. And I'll just tell you, I struggle with shame. There is rarely a weekend I sit up here and communicate with you where I feel like I am even remotely worthy to be in this position. So I struggle with shame. So let me tell you the story, and you'll know why this song means so much to me. William Cowper was from England. Uh, he grew up, he, was, he just was a wild child. He was very, very immoral. Eventually, he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually, he became a Christian, and God began to transform his life. 
And before long, he got the opportunity to serve in the house of Lords. And when he got the opportunity, he was first elated, he was excited. But then, as he thought about it, he began to think about his past. Because he knew that there was going to be a public examination. And he knew that people were going to come forward. And they were going to talk about all of his immorality. And they were going to talk about his lifestyle. And they were, th they, they were going to talk about his past. And he became so depressed and so distraught that he tried to kill himself. But he didn't try to kill himself one time. He tried to kill himself four times. And each time he failed. At first he climbed to the highest bridge he could find in London. He was going to jump off and kill himself. But he realized he was so afraid of heights. He just couldn't do it. So he walked down off the bridge. On the way back to his apartment, he stopped at a pharmacy. He bought a bottle of poison. He had every intention on taking, going home and, and drinking the poison. And he dropped the bottle and broke it. He got home. He found a rope. He tied it into a noose, threw it over a beam, put it around his neck, stood in a chair and jumped off, and the beam broke. He got a knife out of the kitchen and tried to stab himself. The point of the knife hit a rib, and it snapped. And he was finally so emotionally exhausted from all of his failed suicide attempts, he just, he just kind of collapsed on the bed, and he fell asleep. A few hours later, when he woke up, there were some words going through his mind. And he knew without a doubt they were from God. And so he wrote them down. A couple of weeks after that, he went to that public examination and he stood before those people and he says, man, before you even ask me one question, I want to tell you something. And he told the story of his life. And he talked about his sin and his failures, his mistake, his past. And he talked about how Jesus had forgiven him. And how Jesus had taken care of his guilt and his shame. And according to history, there were several men that day in the house of lords after hearing his story decided to accept jesus as their savior too these are the words that he wrote down that morning aaron there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from emmanuel's And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Would you bow your head? Just close your eyes. You know, as we get into a series like this, it's easy because all of us carry guilt and shame. Sometimes it's like, man, I just don't even want to go through this because it's just going to dredge up old memories or old thoughts, but... We have to deal with it so we can move into the future. And maybe the area of your guilt has to do with your parenting, your shame. Sometimes as parents, you know, we live under the enormous guilt that if we'd been perfect parents, that somehow our kids would have turned out better. 
But then we have to stop and remember that we just discovered that Adam and Eve had God as a parent. And we saw how that turned out. But my point is this, I don't care how good of a parent you are, just like us, our children have their own wills. They have their own sin nature. And no matter how hard we try, we have to keep in mind that we're dealing with the person also who's far from perfect. We're all imperfect and that includes our kids. Maybe your guilt and shame comes from the area of your marriage. It was C.S. Lewis who said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start now and you can change the ending. And I'm, I'm sure that there are many married and formerly married individuals who would probably love to sell away to the island of second chances. There are things in my marriage I wish I could have another chance at, right? We would just give anything to be able to relive those years and fix those mistakes that we made. But you need to understand that Jesus' blood covered our shame. It's taken care of. Maybe your shame comes from your behavior, maybe as a child, a teen, maybe, maybe a college student, maybe a young adult, whatever it is. I'm telling you, because of grace, we have the promise of healing and forgiveness even when we blow it. So as you leave this weekend, let that be the thought that you leave with. And let's just drive a stake in the ground and let's put our shame, our shame behind us. And let's just shut down the accuser because Satan's gonna come even this weekend and say, you know what, you are a lousy person. And you say, Satan, here's your answer. You're right. I do have a messy past. And I do have a lot of baggage. And I failed a lot. (laughs) But God. See, but God, that makes all the difference in the world. So let's leave it in the past covered by the blood of Jesus Christ so we can move into the future. Father, help us deal with this. Help us not to let our past define us. You don't let it define us. You see us as a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. May we leave our shame in the past and move boldly with you into the future can't wait to see what you're going to do in our lives in this series. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 